Hey everybody, I'm Jeff Lambert. I want to thank you for tuning in to another episode of Rounders, A History of Baseball in America. Today's episode is going to be the marking of a new type of segment we're going to be doing on the show semi-regularly. I'm calling it Past Game Interviews. And the goal of this time is to be able to sit down with other individuals who are in baseball history and talk to them about what they're doing with their specific crafts. Uh, I really excited for this time to be able to just get to know other people better that I've met through social media or otherwise and learn more about what's going on in this field. So to kick that off, I sat down with a gentleman that I met through Instagram and Twitter. His name is Sam Gazejack. Some of you might be following him already. His username is RIP underscore MLB, and he spends his time using social media to be able to expand what we know about deceased ballplayers. We chatted on Skype for almost 45 minutes, and the time just went by so quickly. He has uh, some really interesting stories to be able to share about his research and his travels, and I'm really excited to be able to share this interview with you. So let's get right to it. Here's the interview with Sam. Enjoy. All right. Good afternoon, everybody. Welcome to our latest episode of Rounders, a history of America's game. I'm excited today. We have an interview with uh, someone that I found on social media, a person I've been following for the past few months. His name is Sam Gazejack. He is on social media as RIP underscore MLB on Instagram and on Twitter and RIP Baseball at Facebook. And he also has a website at ripbaseball.com. Sam, welcome to the show and thanks for taking some time to be able to talk with us. Thanks for having me, Jeff. I appreciate this. So, Sam, when I first started the podcast a couple months ago, you know, we always try and find the people in our tribe when we start these these different uh, uh, cultural and artistic outputs. And uh, I came across your account, and the first thing I saw was a bunch of gravestones. And I thought, well, this is interesting. <laughs> and starting to look at some of the posts that you put together, you have such an interesting uh, backlog of stories of deceased ballplayers and finding these individuals and where they're laid to rest. And I was just fascinated immediately by what I found on your social media accounts. So I wanted to talk to you a little bit about your story and how you started this and um, where you see this going forward. Um, it seems like you're you are very into baseball. It seems that uh, this is important for baseball fans everywhere to be able to get a slice of history that's this this authentic. I think this is really neat. So I'd like to know a little bit about you. Kind of sum up, what do you what do you do through this, this social media account? Um, what is RIP MLB? So it, it's kind of weird. And uh, my, my tagline is, uh, is uh, probably morbid, but hopefully interesting, which I think is probably about the best way to describe this. But uh, in, in a nutshell, kind of what I do is I uh, seek out uh, cemeteries where ballplayers are buried. And, and it's more than just ballplayers. It could be announcers, uh, executives, general managers, um, just people who are connected to baseball in some way and uh, find out where they're buried. I take a picture of their gravestone, or if they have no gravestone at all, just a picture of where approximately I think they're buried. And then I come back home, and I do the research on it, and I try and tell their story as best as I can. Uh, what I've been finding is that you know, baseball goes back to the 1850s uh, in, in amateur status, and then professionally it started in 1871. So there are just tens of thousands of people who are associated with baseball 
way more names than anybody can ever really know. So a lot of these stories just because of the number of people who have been involved in baseball, they get forgotten. The names fall out of favor. They go by the wayside and they just kind of sit um, forgotten. So I've been really enjoying and really finding it interesting to go back, finding these gravestones, uh, carving through uh, some archives and newspaper research and just trying to find their stories again and tell them to uh, a new modern audience. It's such an interesting um, subset of what you do. No one else is really doing this from what I can see. You know, you have baseball historians that certainly cover some of the less known stories throughout baseball history. And there's a lot of content to cover. But, you know, you actually not only just looking up these players and researching, but going to find the grave sites. I think that's that's incredibly interesting. And that must take a lot of of commitment and, and not only that, but love for the game. So I'd love to hear how baseball was important to you growing up. Tell us about your childhood and how baseball became an important part of your life. Well, I got into baseball in the in the early 80s. Uh, I grew up in Chicago on the north side, so by fate, I ended up becoming a Cubs fan. Um, <laughs> and it just started, and I can still remember it now, is that I just happened to be flipping through channels, and I found a, a Cubs were playing the Expos on WGN in Chicago. And I asked my grandfather what the game was, and he started explaining it to me. And you know, who the Cubs were and how when they were pitching, you've got to root for them to strike out the other team and how when they were batting, you're rooting for them to get a walk. And I realized that this was the early 80s Cubs team. So asking them to get a base hit was probably a bit too much. So we, the walk was the best <laughs> that we could hope for. Um, and then uh, the 84 Cubs came along right after that. And that was uh, the year that they made the postseason for the first time since 1945. And they had, uh, you know, the daily double of Dernier and Sandberg at the top and Ron Say and Keith Moreland, Jody Davis. Harry Carey was doing the announcing. And this was, you know, in his prime, Harry Carey, um, before he became the, became the uh, caricature that you, that you might know uh, today. And it was just so easy to fall in love with that team and fall in love with baseball. And uh, the, the, the 84 Cubs ended on a down note. They lost in the playoffs to the Padres. But I, you know, not knowing my baseball history is like, all right, well, they'll make it in the playoffs next year. And and I, in my naivete, I had no idea what I was setting myself up for to uh, start following the Cubs then. But um, that was kind of what sucked me in and what kept me. So I went to I went to ball games um, whenever my mom would let me go and uh, watched them all the time on TV and follow them to this day as a diehard Cub fan. And just as a matter of doing so, I started collecting baseball cards and uh, finding, following other players who weren't on my team. And um, then as I got into that, I started getting back into the baseball history a little bit and finding out more about the Hall of Fame and people who were some of the pioneers of the game. And so um, just, you know, the, the, this, this whole current research only happened within about the last uh, three years or so. But baseball has stuck with me since I was about seven years old, and it's never really let go. And and with your family, you said that you had a connection with your grandfather that really he brought you into the game and and taught you the basics and and built up that fandom for you. Um, did you find baseball as a a unifying factor in your family? Something that would bring you together on holidays and would come up at family events? Is baseball something that runs deep in your family? You know, I've probably got into it maybe a little bit deeper than most other people in my family, but uh, there's uh, there's a whole bunch of Cubs fans in my family. 
Um, oddly enough, I never actually was able to watch a baseball game with my grandfather because he had heart problems and high blood pressure and watching the Cubs. And this was, you know, they had mostly good teams, but all mostly bad teams, but occasionally really great teams. Mm-hmm. And uh, just watching a game would get him so worked up that he would have to go off into another room, put the Cubs game on this little Zenith handheld radio that he had. And he'd listen to the games that way until he could calm down enough. And he'd go back into the living room, watch the game with me, and then he would get nervous again and move away so i've never watched a full game with him ever um and uh but he passed away uh, while i was in college in the 90s uh, i still have his radio that he used to uh to watch to listen to the cubs games and when they won the world series in uh, 2016 i had his radio in my hand as uh, as the final out was made so hopefully he got to hear that one wow wow that's that's amazing. And, and, you know, it's amazing how we keep those trinkets with us. My grandfather was a diehard Red Sox fan, too. And he always had this Red Sox pennant that he had gotten at a game when he was a kid. So we're talking oh, wow. 1960s, I'd say. I still have that on my wall. And, you know, it, it's <laughs> discolored, you know, to the point of not even being white anymore. But every time I look at that, you know, same as you, I think of my grandfather and I think about, you know, the people that bring baseball into our lives. And, you know, it's 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 a powerful thing that keeps people, I think, interested in the game. Mm-hmm. So. You mentioned that you you're not in Chicago currently anymore. Have you adopted any other teams uh, to uh, to cheer for, or, or are you solely just unilaterally a Cubs fan? Uh, well, still, you know, you, you never forget your hometown team. So I'm no Fairweather fan there. Uh, I, I went to school at Kansas. Uh, so I got to follow the Royals that way. And this was back when they had uh, Brett was still playing with them, David Cohn. And mm-hmm. so they were a fun team to watch. And I, I still like them to this day. I live in Atlanta now. It took me a long time to get over my grudges with the Braves because I remember when they would come into Wrigley Field and just just kick the crap out of my beloved Cubs teams. Uh, this is back when they had <laughs> Maddox Glavin and, and Smolton, the pitching staff. And so I couldn't forgive them for a long time, but the Braves, they went through their own dark era uh, these last couple of years, and they're finally starting to pull out of it now, and they've just got a ton of really young, exciting players. So it's fun to watch Acuna and Albies play and Freddie Freeman, who I think is going to win an MVP at one point in time in the next few years. So so I can root for them now and not feel too guilty with them. I just don't root for them when the Cubs are in town or when they're playing yeah. them. But, uh, but yeah, I'm, I'm okay with the Braves from now on. Yeah, you know, one of the things since I just recently moved to Florida, uh, I grew up a Red Sox fan. And, you know, I find myself cheering for the Marlins just because they're never really a threat to the Red Sox. <laughs> not, not only being in a separate league, but, I, you know, I always joke around with my brother-in-law that the Miami Marlins are the best farm team that the Red Sox have. They've helped us out so much over the years. Um, but I can always count on cheap tickets down here, which is great because Fenway, I mean, you're talking 50, 60 bucks just for standing room seats. It's ridiculous. So you never forget your hometown team. I agree completely. Um, you, you and I have had conversations offline. You've mentioned, um, you know, you have kids. Do you find yourself taking them to, uh, have you taken them back to the Mecca to Wrigley field? Do you, do they go to ball games with you? Is that a interest in their life? Uh, we went to Wrigley field once and this was before the Cubs got good. So uh, we were actually able to get tickets, but they're, they're actually playing the Red Sox on uh, on a father's day weekend and oh, happened to be in town. So we got to see them. My son was maybe uh, about six months old, so he obviously doesn't remember it, but he can say that he was, he's was he been in Wrigley Field. Um, we do go to the minor league games around here fairly often. Uh, I'm, I'm just up the road from where the Gwinnett Stripers play, and that's the Braves' AAA team. 
So uh, they, they're fun. They're fun to watch. The games are really cool. I love minor league baseball a lot. Uh, I got to travel a, a fair bit over the last few years, and so I try and take in a minor league game whenever I'm in the area. So um, my my youngest, who's six, he plays little league, and he's big into baseball. So he's a, and he's much better at baseball than I ever was. I, I watch him at little league, and I'm amazed by the things that he can do at six years old. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's a he taught himself how to be a switch hitter. And wow! I, I could barely hit lefty, which is my dominant side. And, you know, up until I quit Little League completely, but he's he's pretty good that way, and uh, he actually even switched through in a game, which kind of blew my mind. Um, and then I've got two daughters who are 13. One is not really into baseball at all, but uh, the other one has gotten into it as the as the Cubs were in the World Series. And now uh, Javi Baez is her favorite, and she'll she'll sit and watch the games with me. And we were watching the World Series game yesterday, and they're asking really good questions about baseball and strategy. So I thought that was kind of cool. It's neat that you're continuing to pass it on to your kids. And, you know, my son's only two. I'm hoping to do the same. And he already likes to play catch, even though it's only two feet apart. But, hey. yeah. It's the great thing about baseball, right? Being able to pass it down from generation to generation. It's been around for such a long time. So, Sam, can you tell me a little bit more about, you mentioned that the part about researching deceased player, that's that's been more recent. Um, what what got you into starting that part of your interest in baseball and baseball history? Uh, oddly enough, what got me into it was a, a computer game. Uh, I, I play out-of-the-park baseball, which is... Uh, I do, too. <laughs> okay, great. So you know what it is. Uh, oh, great those- game. Yeah, for the folks who don't know what it is, it's a baseball simulator, and it you don't really play it for the graphics, but you play it just because it is the deepest baseball game out there as far as the, the amount of things that you can do with it. And one of the things that you can do with it is play any season up to 1871 on forward. Uh, you can play it with those players. You can do it as, with a, historically as accurate as you want. Or you can mix in players from all eras and create a team that way. I decided to start a season in 1871 and just play forward from there and see how different my history would end up from how the real world went. And as I started doing that, I realized how little I knew about that era. I knew the Hall of Famers, guys like Cy Young, Cap Anson, things like that. I knew a couple of the good players who weren't in the Hall of Fame. Uh, Deacon White wasn't in the Hall of Fame at that point, and I'd heard of him. And I knew the folks who were on the 1869 Cincinnati Reds, which is generally considered the the first pro baseball league. But beyond that, there was a whole bunch of people that I had never heard of in my life. And some of them were really great for one year and then vanished off the face of the earth. Some of them were really great for a few years and actually were borderline Hall of Fame cases. And I got interested in learning about them, and I spent – almost as much time playing the game as I did uh, going back into a uh, baseball reference and trying to find out more about them and what their lives were. And if they had short careers, why they had short careers. Mm-hmm. And uh, so in the process of reading about their lives, you're talking about players from the 1870s, naturally their death is a part of that. And uh, the nice thing about baseball reference is that you can actually find out where they're buried. And so I started noticing that uh, all these players tended to be buried in the, the cities where they played, um, they never, you know, after their playing days were over, they never really left. Or in a disturbing number of cases, they died in the middle of their playing careers and just happened to be buried there. So hmm. I got more interested in that. And as it so happened, uh, one of the names that really stuck with me was Harry Stovey, was a guy I'd never heard of, but he was one of the biggest stars of the 1880s and 90s, a five-tool player, 
Uh, he was actually the uh, the home run king in baseball for a few years. Um, he held a record. He had, he had 122 home runs in his career, and he held the record for most home runs until Roger Connor broke his record, and then Babe Ruth broke that record, and so on and so forth. But uh, but so I was learning about Harry Stovey, who was completely fami- unfamiliar with me. Uh, during his life, after he played, he became a policeman in New Bedford, Massachusetts. And as it so happened, I had a chance to go to Boston for work, and my wife's family is from New Bedford, so we were going to go there and visit a couple of the relatives and uh, see some of the uh, old sites. And I thought, well, hey, why don't we go to Oak Grove Cemetery and see if we can find this guy, just as a lark. And it was uh, it was probably about the worst circumstances possible, because in a lot of places, you go to a cemetery, things are well marked, there's directions online you can find grave uh, information pretty easily there wasn't anything there there wasn't an office and it's a very run down beat up old cemetery and i wandered around probably for about 45 minutes and it was on two sides of the street so i started off on the wrong side of the street trying to find it we gave up there went over to the other side of the street and just as out of sheer luck, out of driving around, we saw uh, Stowe on a gravestone, and that was what Harry Stovey's real name was. So we looked around, and sure enough, that was his grave. And uh, so that was uh, that was the first place person that I ever found. And after that, I thought, well, that was pretty cool. What else can I do? And then I had another trip to Texas planned uh, not long after that, and I started looking to see who was buried in San Antonio. And a couple of Hall of Famers, Ross Youngs and uh, Rue Waddell, are buried over there. So I thought I'd uh, try and find them out. And whenever I had a trip to make, I started looking as to who might be buried there that would be interesting to me. And I started getting more and more photos. And then I thought about, well, what am I going to do with these? Um, and as it turns out, there's actually more people doing this than I thought. Um, there's actually a small community of baseball people who do go around finding graves. <laughs> and I wanted to do something more than just have a photo on a hard drive. I actually wanted to be able to tell people about it because I figured if I didn't know Harry Stovey and I, and I thought I knew baseball decently well, that there are probably a lot of other people who don't know where that or who he was either. And while they may know Ross Young's name because he is in the Hall of Fame, they might not know his whole story. <laughs> so I decided that I would try and find a way to start telling these stories. And uh, Instagram is kind of the medium that I uh, ended up following upon. So I put the photos online and I wrote what information I had at the time there. And it kind of took off. And I've just started going. And now I'm, I've, I, I just did my 250th uh, profile, great profile on Instagram. And uh, after I just had a trip to California. So now I'm well over 100 players in my backlog that I've still got to get through. And I'm adding more whenever I go out and find a new cemetery. Wow. 250 players. Is there one that sticks out at you as the most interesting player that you've researched? The one that I found was a guy named Sled Allen. And this is why I really like what I do, because his story was something that I had never heard. And probably a lot of people didn't, but it's absolutely fascinating. If you just look at baseball reference, the only thing that you really see about him is that he played in 14 games for the 1910 St. Louis Browns and he was a catcher. And he hit 130, so he didn't really stick around very long. And then that was his only appearance in Major League Baseball. And then he died in 1959 in Lubbock. And if you don't do the research, that's where his story ends. Uh, I got intrigued enough by him to start looking into it. 
And I actually ended up writing his entire biography for uh, for Saber, uh, Society of American uh, Baseball Research. Wow. Because uh, I just thought it was that fascinating. But the mm-hmm. rest of the story is is that Sled Allen was born in Missouri. He ran away from a farm to play baseball, uh, drifted down to Texas, and that was where he made his name and got uh, played well enough that he got noticed by the Browns and picked up. After he played there, he went back to Texas, went back to Lubbock, played a few more seasons, uh, started managing a little bit. When he got a little too old to play, he became uh, a manager of the Lubbock Hubbers, which was a semi-pro team that he founded. And they ended up winning uh, a big semi-pro tournament in Denver uh, with his help. When he wasn't doing that, he was booking wrestling matches in Lubbock. He was booking concerts in Lubbock. And that was how a lot of the early rock and roll stars came to Texas. Uh, I wrote in the bio that uh, he's the guy responsible for bringing Elvis Presley and Gorgeous George to Lubbock, Texas, just not at the same time. Wow. And uh, the cool thing about him, I'm a music writer uh, as well when I can. So his rock and roll concerts for the kids growing up in Lubbock at the time, that was their first exposure to a whole new type of music and a whole new world beyond just Lubbock, Texas. And some of the kids who were influenced by that, and if you're in Texas, uh, or if you're a fan of Texas music, you'll know the names. But there are uh, Joe Ely, Butch Hancock, and Jimmy Dale Gilmore were kids who heard this music. They went off and they've recorded dozens of albums under their own names. They also uh, are a band called the Flatlanders. Uh, they're a tremendously influential band in Texas and the Americana music world. Uh, one of the other people that was influenced by, by, uh, by the music was Sled Allen's son, Terry. Terry Allen is one of the godfathers of Texas music. And he is a brilliant singer-songwriter. He is also an artist, a sculptor, a playwright, just a tremendously uh, creative artist who can do a little bit of everything. And he got his taste of music from listening to the the concerts that his dad brought in. And then he took that out, and he's created his own music. His kids are still in Texas, and they're very in-demand session musicians there. And... um, so as I was writing this bio, I called in a couple of favors of people that I knew uh, to see if I can get in touch with Terry. And I managed to do an interview with him for about 20 minutes or a half hour. And this guy, he's in his 70s now. Uh, he he was uh, born when his dad's sled was about 60 years old. So this is the son of a turn-of-the-century baseball player, which there can't be that many of them around. So that was a pretty unique opportunity just to listen to what baseball was like back in the early 1900s. And so I got to talk with Terry about his dad's life and uh, about everything that he did. And it was just a, a really great story. And, and again, it's it's not something that you would really know if you didn't do the research and look back a little bit. Wow. Wow. What a story to come across. Yeah. And I'm sure out of all the other players that you've you've researched and gone through, there has to be one that sticks out in your mind, too, that just kind of a heartbreaker, a sad story. Is there one that that comes out in your brain as as being just, uh, I guess, a tale that went wrong? You know, a lot of the. A lot of players are people that I don't really know until I go back and start doing the research. Uh, The things that make me sad is when I go back and find people whose baseball cards I used to collect when I was a kid. Um, That's really sad because these these are people who, by all rights and reasons, should probably still be here just for one reason or another. Their their time was called uh, way ahead of time. And um, if you are of a certain age like I am, you probably remember listening to SportsCenter um, that – probably about the early 90s and you remember you 
you might have tuned in trying to hear about what was going on in spring training, and instead you hear about this boating accident in Florida that killed a couple of Cleveland pitchers, uh, Steve Olin and, Tim, and uh, Tim Cruz. And uh, it was actually it was a stunner for me because it was probably my first uh, recollection that ball players can indeed die in the prime of their careers. And so uh, when I went to visit Steve Olin's grave in Portland, Oregon, um, that brought a lot back a lot of that sadness. Um, Dan Quisenberry was the same way. He was a guy who I loved to watch just because he had the weird delivery, the, the submarine delivery for the Royals. And uh, his quotes were just fantastic. Um, he's famous for saying, uh, I found a delivery in my flaw and uh, a whole <laughs> ton of other just great lines. And uh, he died really young from uh, brain tumors. And so um, visiting his grave, it just seemed very wrong that he should be you know, not here entertaining people on MLB Network. Um, one of the interesting stories that I found, and this is going back 100 years or more, was a guy named Jimmy Wolf. And um, he, he was also known as Chicken Wolf. If you look in uh, Baseball Reference, that's how he's listed. And that was a childhood nickname he got from his friend Pete Browning. Uh, but both of them uh, were part of the uh, heart of the, the Louisville Cardinal, or Louisville Colonels, which was an American association team that played in the 1880s and early 1890s. And Pete Browning was the big player at the time. He was the big name. He was known as the, the gladiator, and he was also the original Louisville Slugger. Uh, the legend is that he got the first Louisville Slugger baseball bat ever made. But Jimmy Wolf was kind of the heart of the team. He never he he played most of his career with the Colonels. Uh, the one time they won uh, the American Association Championship was the year that he had his career year. He hit over three sixty that year. And uh, he never probably really got the recognition he deserved during his career, but he was just one of these steady players. He, pl he played almost every day, got a ton of hits, uh, just the heart and soul of the team. And I thought that was really great. So I looked into what happened uh, after he played. He became a fireman in Louisville. And one day uh, he was called out to a fire. And this was back when uh, fire trucks were still the horse and buggies. And he, uh, his buggy, he was the driver. They got into an accident. It collided with a candy cart, of all things, in the middle of this intersection. Uh, the, the fire truck broke. The horses ran loose. And as he was the driver, he was holding the reins. He got yanked off the wagon, uh, thrown onto the cobblestone streets, and dragged along until he was able to let go. Wow. He suffered what we would now consider a traumatic brain injury. With it, but bear in mind this was back in the very early 1900s. Nobody really knew how to treat that. So uh, within a couple of months of that accident, he became very paranoid. Uh, his son died uh, in an unrelated accident uh, not long after that, so that just probably sp spurred a depression. But he became convinced that people were trying to poison him or get him out of Louisville. He became very hard to manage. His family had no choice but to have him committed into an insane asylum. Um, actually, the same one that Pete Browning went into when his mental health started to decline. Um, that's kind of an ongoing theme that you hear with a lot of 19th century baseball players, sadly, is they end up in, a, in an asylum at one point in time in their lives. But Jimmy Wolf stayed there for most of the rest of his life. Uh, he was finally deemed not to be a threat or a problem and was released and died very shortly after. But uh, it, it just seemed like a really tragic ending to a guy who seemed like had a really steady, solid career and, and a lot of things going for him at the time. And with all these players that you come across, you know, like you said, because of the nature of the research and how long baseball has been around in American history, a lot of these players, their, their grave sites would have been there for quite some time. Do you, do you find any commonalities in terms of 
baseball players when they played and how uh, revered their final resting places are? There are a co- I've only actually been to a couple of places where there are any degree of real tributes there. Um, Shoeless Joe Jackson is buried in South Carolina, and every picture that I've ever seen, he's got a ring of baseballs around his grave and sometimes a couple of shoes there. And uh, when I went there, yeah, I found a bunch of baseballs there. Um, up in uh, Greenwood Cemetery in Brooklyn, Harry, Henry Chadwick, who was one of the very early writers of the game and a baseball pioneer, there was a bunch of baseballs scattered around his grave. Uh, same with Alexander Cartwright, who was another one of the, the baseball pioneers that was out in uh, Oahu, Hawaii. But um, by and large, there's not too many, uh, not too many fan-based tributes that I've seen. Uh, most of the time, they don't even really have. Uh, any indication on the graves that they were uh, a baseball player at all. Occasionally you'll see uh, a ball or a mitt on a gravesite. Um, Dean Chance, who won a Cy Young Award, has actually got a picture of the Cy Young uh, Award on his stone. Um, but for uh, for a long chunk of time, from probably about the 1930s or so to maybe the 1990s, gravestones really weren't that interesting um you know back in the victorian era there were these massive marble sculptures and you could have stirring tributes there and they were really ornate and, and beautiful and a couple of the people who died uh chris von der Aha, who was the owner of the browns and uh, and harry wright who was another baseball pioneer they've got life-size statues at their at their graves and then you've got basically flat kind of boring stones for about 80 years and now for people who are starting to die um, in contemporary times, we're getting back a little bit to where uh, the graves are starting to get a little bit more ornate. And you can actually see um, you know, ceramic pictures on the gravestones or um, etchings into the gravestones. Uh, Ricardo Ingram, is a not too, he's a, he played for the Tigers and was a longtime Twins coach uh, before he died of a brain tumor um, maybe about 10 years or so ago. He's got his... Uh, He's got his picture in his in his baseball uniform on his grave, and that was a really neat remembrance. Have you ever heard from any family members of a player that you've profiled on social media, where you've you've taken a picture of the gravesite and said the backstory, and maybe a family or friend of that individual has contacted you, thanking you or, or asking you for more information? Has that happened? Um, every now and again, I'll hear from people. The, the earliest I've heard back from was uh, I did a I did a profile on Dory Dean, who pitched in one season. He pitched in 1876, and I heard back from a woman who is would have been a great, 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 maybe another great even relation. Uh, I didn't really get too much information from her, but uh, but just it was neat to hear that someone could trace back their family history that far back um when i wrote the story on sled allen i actually got some really nice emails from terry saying that i i gave him a bunch of information that he didn't even know about his dad so that was pretty cool to have that um i, I what i also do for some of these social media sites is uh, i write obituaries for people who pass away currently just because i never i, I don't like going back and find reading about a player and the finding out, Oh man, he died. I didn't even know that nobody even said anything. So I try and write obituaries up just to put notice out for anybody who might've followed that player. And I've heard from a couple of people whose obituaries I've written, uh, just thanking me for keeping their husband's memory alive or for saying nice things about their dad. So that makes me feel glad that, you know, maybe I can, um, help, uh, comfort their, their loss a little bit. Yeah, I can imagine that that's got to be a, a great tribute to someone who loses a loved one and 
you know, baseball isn't who someone is, but it's it's often something that they do, and and to have that part of their life uh, remembered, and I think that's that's a great tribute for family members. That that's awesome. With with this overall journey that you've taken, Sam, you must have met some really interesting people along the way so far. People that you mentioned that you've you've met other people that go to grave sites and. Um, take photographs of deceased ballplayers and profile a little bit of their careers. Are there any other individuals that you've met, uh, relationships you've formed uh, from beginning this hobby? Um, yeah, I've had some emails from a, from a, a few interesting people. And like I said, it, it is interesting that there are other people who are doing this too. Um, there's a, a, someone down in Arkansas, uh, Dr. Fred Worth. He's a, a professor there. And he's probably been to more grave sites than anybody on the planet as far as baseball uh, relations go uh, he's been to thousands of them and this includes minor leaguers umpires negro leaguers you can think you name it he's probably been there and uh, he's helped me uh, locate a couple of people that i've struggled with uh, i've helped him locate a couple of people who are in the georgia area that he might not have known about um, one of them like skip carey who's the announcer for the braves for for a long long time uh, he's falsely noted in uh, on find a grave as being cremated and having no gravestone he's actually buried not too far from where i am so i went down there took a couple of pictures uh, recorded the coordinates and passed those along to dr worth um I, I wrote a bio on james white davis who is another baseball pioneer from the 1860s and um i i because I felt like it and wanted to be stupid, I, I, uh, I cc'd uh, John Thorne, who's the official historian of Major League Baseball, in my tweet yep. about that. And uh, he actually wrote back and you know, complimented my piece, pointed out a couple of uh, factual errors that I included. And some of that was just I couldn't – I have a very short amount of space in Instagram with which to write a full biography, so I have to truncate things, and sometimes I – um, get facts wrong with that, but he corrected me with a couple of things. I made some changes. Uh, I brought to his attention uh, what I think of as might be the first ever old timers game that was ever hosted, and this is back in the 1870s. So, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, old timers games have been around almost as long as old timer as baseball is itself. Wow. But uh, so I sent him a, a, a notice about that game that he wasn't familiar with, which I thought was pretty cool because, you know, if, if anybody knows everything about baseball, it's probably John Thorne. So to find something that he wasn't familiar with was pretty interesting for me and pretty, pretty cool. Now, you, you've also mentioned um, on social media that you're thinking of branching out a bit more outside of social media, uh, that you're going to be starting a blog. Um, tell us a little bit about that. Um, why did you decide to start this? Uh, what, what can your, your followers hope to see now that you're uh, expanding what you do? Well, it's it's in its infancy right now. It's it's ripbaseball.com. So you can go there and check it out now. There's only about maybe 10 or 11 posts on there right now. So it is very much new. I'm still working out the bugs on it, but it, it's up there. Uh, what, I, what I found when I started doing this is that all the research materials that I really had was Baseball Reference and some of the other baseball statistical websites and whatever contemporary articles I could find on Google. And as I started doing this, I started finding more and more research materials, uh, started subscribing to newspapers.com so I can get some archives back that way. As I found more research, I found more stuff to write about. And eventually I ran into the uh, character limit that Instagram has, which I didn't even know that it had one uh, when I started this, but it does. And so my choices were either cut back on some of the writing that I do, which as a writer is really hard for me to cut my own writing, Mm -hmm. or find a medium where I don't have a word count at all. 
So I decided to start a blog so I could uh, put all the information or at least as much of it that I find interesting on there. Uh, so if you go on to Instagram, I still write uh, right up to the word limit that I can or the character accounts uh, to the point that I'm abbreviating things where I can just so I can squeeze in an extra three words at the end of a, at the end of a sentence. But yep. then if you go to my websites, uh, I've got it all on there and probably a bunch more that I didn't have room for on any social media site. So if you want to get the, uh, the, the basic uh, grasp, you can go to Instagram. And if you want to get the, uh, the full story, or at least as much as I can tell, probably about maybe in about a thousand words, give or take, uh, that'll be on my blog. Very good. And just to, just to circle back around again, for people who may not be familiar with your work but would like to look for you on social media, you are available on Twitter and Instagram at RIP underscore MLB. Uh, tell us a little bit about your Facebook page, and it's a little bit of a different naming. Uh, how can people follow you on Facebook if they want to do that? Uh, so Facebook, I've got a I've got a page on as uh, RIP Baseball. Uh, apparently, Facebook uh, Facebook did not like me using the MLB abbreviations, so I just had to go with RIP Baseball there, and uh, I like that. It ended up fe- fitting pretty well, so I ended up naming my blog that too. So, um, so Facebook is, is Facebook dot com slash RIP Baseball, and the blog is RIP Baseball dot com. Very good. Great. So I'd encourage anybody listening to the episode, take a minute, go visit Sam on his social media pages, stop by his website. I love getting new posts from him on a regular basis. What he does is just incredibly interesting. Um, Sam, I started this a couple months ago, this podcast, because of my love of baseball history. You obviously do what you do because you love baseball and the rich history that it provides. If there's anybody out there listening to this episode right now that would like to get more involved in um researching baseball, uh, learning more about its past, uh, interested in where it's going. You mentioned you're a member of the Society for American Baseball Research. There's some groups that you join. Do you have any tips or advice or uh, just general guidance for people that may want to get more into this um, this area of baseball? Yeah, it's very much a wormhole that you'll find uh, once you start, you kind of keep digging backwards and backwards. And uh, it's like, you know, going on YouTube, you may go on there just to watch one video. And five hours later, you're watching a new video on a completely different subject. Uh, Baseball history is kind of a lot like that. If you start out with Sabre, they have a uh, bio project where they're trying to come up with biographies of everyone who's ever played the game, as well as anyone who's slightly related to the game. Um, what I do is a lot smaller bites. Th- these are big, full, multi-thousand-word stories. Uh, very interesting to read, but it, there's a bit of a time commitment there. Um, but you can start looking at that, and you can start off trying to find the information about one player and say, well, well I'm going to go and look back at this team that he played for in this year. And then you find out who his teammates are, and you get interested in their stories. And then you look back at what their minor leagues were like and you find out who their minor league teammates were. So, I mean, you can start by trying to you know, learn a little bit more about Mike Trout now. And if you click back far enough, you can find yourself looking at uh, stories about Babe Ruth's roommate, roommate from the 1927 Yankees and things like that. So just let it, let it you know, take you where it will. And there's a lot of interesting stories out there. Uh, there have been about 19,000 plus players who have ever played a major league game. And that's not even including uh, the people like in the Negro leagues who never had a chance to play the game. People in the all American girls, professional baseball league, minor leaguers, people who played before baseball was even professional baseball. And they've all got really neat stories. And uh, it, it takes a little bit of work sometimes to dig these stories out, but it's almost always worth it. 
I agree. I think that one of my most popular podcast episodes that I've done just just up until this point was profiling Jackie Mitchell, who uh, you know was a female player who played semi-professional ball and was the first individual, the first pitcher to strike out Babe Ruth and Lou Gehrig back to back. And uh, it was so hard to find any information on her. And it really wasn't up until the 1970s that she even started getting any publicity for what occurred. Uh, and just finding those stories, it's just, it's, it's so neat to be able to, to discover uh, an individual who may have accomplished something, but uh, didn't get their due diligence, or didn't get the due credit that they, that they uh, should get. And bringing those stories to light, I think baseball fans appreciate. And I think, uh, I think what you do and, and what I'm certainly trying to do, it's it's a valuable part for baseball fans to uh, take part in. And I think that's where I wanted to end with you, Sam. I wanted to just overall get your thoughts on why you do what you do. Why should baseball fans care about paying attention to its its deceased, its past players? Well, I don't know that this is necessarily for everybody. I mean, there's a lot of casual fans who just want to look on the box scores online, see how their team's doing, and, and, and that's it, and that's great. Um, if you're interested in more, like I said, there's more than 19,000 people who have ever played the game, more than one person could ever realize. So inevitably, there are stories that get forgotten, stories that are just lost in newspaper archives, uh, but that doesn't mean that they're not interesting. So what I, tr- what I try and do and what I, I hope people appreciate is that for a few minutes, you can take a look at a story that I wrote about a player that you never heard of who maybe only played a couple of years in the 1930s or who maybe only pitched one game in 1893 and find out a little bit more about what the game was like, uh, who his teammates were, just learn a little bit more about baseball that you didn't know before you started reading. And I, I don't mean for it to be a whole time commitment. I just try and keep it pretty short so that you can read it. You can get a five minute history lesson and add that to your knowledge base. And Hopefully it just adds to a, a greater appreciation for the game of where it's been, where it is now, and hopefully where it's going in the future. Sam, I want to thank you for taking time to come on the podcast and talking to everybody about what you do. And I wish you all the best and I will be watching as a fan. And this was fun, Jeff. Thanks for letting me ramble. I appreciate it. Absolutely. It's been fun. Ladies and gentlemen, thanks for tuning into this episode. And remember, there are only two seasons, winter and baseball. <laughs>